I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today, we're going to get into an issue that's not about illegal drugs, at least not yet. It's an issue that I kept an eye on all those years I was running the Drug Policy Alliance and dealing with the consequences of the war on drugs. Uh, But this one has to do with tobacco and nicotine and the question of whether or not the whole idea of harm reduction applies as much to tobacco products and smoking as it does with the illegal drugs. Now, around the time I was stepping down from DPA about four years ago, the whole phenomenon of jewel came around, of kids jeweling and using e-cigarettes. I mean, the e-cigarettes have been around for a while, but there was this explosion of adolescent vaping with jewel and some of the competing products and this public hysteria in the United States that resulted in all sorts of localities and even states starting to ban these products. And with people, kids and adults being told that e-cigarettes were as or more dangerous than cigarettes. And meanwhile, there's all sorts of evidence out there that adults 
who have had a really hard time quitting smoking could really benefit from making the switch to e-cigarettes. So this issue has been seriously in the news. In fact, but for the COVID pandemic, we'd probably still be talking about the vaping epidemic. Now, it's the FDA's job to regulate this industry. And they delayed doing that for many years, but they're supposed to issue a ruling uh, fairly soon about what this entire e-cigarette industry is going to look like. You know, which flavors can be sold, if any of these things can be sold at all, how much nicotine can be put in, whether just to allow tobacco flavors, what restrictions on access to kids. So whenever the FDA rules, this could fundamentally reshape this entire industry. Until then, though, I want to provide some introduction to the issue. And I'll tell you that as I was learning more and more about this issue over the last few years, it was just one name that just kept popping up left, right, and center. And that's my guest today. His name is Clive Bates. Uh, he was a leading figure in the United Kingdom in the late 90s, and early 2000s in the fight against smoking and big tobacco. He ran the leading anti-smoking organization, which in the UK is called Action on Smoking and Health, or ASH. And he stayed active in this area ever since and really emerged as really perhaps the outstanding expert and in some respects proponent of tobacco harm reduction. His website, ClydeBates.com, is probably the best resource in the world on this issue. There's probably nobody I've learned more from on this issue than Clive. So, Clive, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Ethan. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I've been a, a long-standing admirer uh, of you and your work on the war on drugs. So I promised our audience that with people whom I agree with a lot, I'm going to avoid this being any kind of love fest or just agreement <laughs> fest. So what I'd like you to do is start off by just laying out the overall argument uh, for why things like Juul and others were maybe good things and why maybe people shouldn't be as worried about the whole kids thing or about this as most of my country and many other countries seem to be. Well, first of all, we have to start off with a, a definition of the public health problem. And that is that smoking, even now, is a massive killer worldwide. Uh, WHO says uh, 8 million deaths per year. Um, typically, uh, I think in the United States, they would typically say 480,000 premature deaths per year. And in developed countries, tobacco would be killing or smoking would be killing more than obesity, alcohol, road accidents, drug misuse and HIV combined. Now, the pattern of illness, it's a sort of late onset problem. So the median lifelong smoker would typically be losing around 10 years of life in their 70s. So that's the sort of shape of the problem. But really, after the sort of mid-30s to 40s, people who've smoked all their lives are starting to die prematurely from cancer, from heart disease, uh, from uh, serious lung ailments like emphysema and so on. So that's the basic problem. Now, that problem is caused by smoke, not by the underlying drug-using pattern. Okay, now just to unpack that slightly, people are smoking and using tobacco for the nicotine. That is the recreational drug habit 
involved. You know, it's a relatively, in drug terms, a relatively benign drug. Uh, it doesn't cause intoxication. It doesn't cause people to lose control. It doesn't cause violence. It doesn't cause family breakdown, typically, and so on. But the harm is done by the mode of delivery. And the mode of delivery is to set fire to tobacco in the tip of a cigarette and inhale the products of combustion in the form of a, a kind of nicotine-bearing aerosol. And those products of combustion, the tar and the hot gases that you inhale, those are the things that cause the disease. Now, what we have now is a range of products that don't involve combustion, but allow users to consume nicotine. So these would be vaping products, heated tobacco products, um, smokeless tobacco products like snus, and these new oral nicotine products are kind of pouches that don't contain tobacco but do contain nicotine. You put it in your mouth and absorb the nicotine through the mouth. And if you can take nicotine without the smoke, then you are likely to be avoiding all or nearly all of the disease risk that affects smokers. So there is a massive harm reduction potential in these smoke-free products, of which the product Juul uh, that you mentioned, Ethan, is, you know, one amongst many, but one of those that has had the most spectacular success in terms of switching smokers from a smoked product to a smoke-free product. And the more of that we can do, the more that we can convert the world's stock of around 1 billion smokers to smoke-free forms of nicotine, the more that we're in, in play to get a massive public health dividend out of the migration from combustible to non-combustible forms of nicotine. Mm -hmm. So that's the basic public health problem and the harm reduction premise explained in overview terms. So now when I look at public opinion polls in the United States, we now see that a majority of Americans think that vaping or using a jewel or e-cigarette is as or more dangerous than cigarettes. We see a majority of people believing that nicotine is why cigarettes cause cancer. So basically what you're saying is that these public perceptions are the opposite of the truth? Those public perceptions are completely wrong and they are very dangerous uh, because people act on the basis of their perceptions. And if you hold those perceptions, you would be indifferent to whether you're consuming nicotine by smoking or by vaping or by heated products or by um, smokeless tobacco. And you should not be indifferent about that. The health risks are radically different. And we know this really beyond any reasonable doubt. So if you measure hazardous agents, toxicants that you find in the blood, uh, urine, saliva of people using these products, you'll find dramatically lower levels amongst people who are using smoke-free products than you would find among people who are smoking cigarettes. Almost the same in many cases as non-smokers or down to the levels where um, people quit smoking. And therefore, it's just completely implausible that there would be the same disease risks. Now, some people say, well, you just don't know about the long-term future. And of course, you know, we don't have time travel. We can't go forward 40 years and find out what happened from prolonged use of products that were only invented, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But if you have dramatically lower exposures, it's a pretty reasonable assumption that you're going to have significantly lower disease risk. And maybe you're going to be below 
the thresholds that the body can deal with and have negligible disease risk. You know, and if you're losing from lifelong smoking 10 years of life in your 70s, maybe you'd be at worst losing a few months. And then you start to get a risk behavior where the risks are kind of in the noise of other things that you do in uh, life. Whereas smoking is not in the noise, it is an outlier in terms of personal risks that are assumed through substance use or consumption or lifestyle or behaviours of any sort. So I, I don't buy these ideas that they're anything like equivalent. One final thing to say about this, Ethan, though, is that this is not accidental. People have those perceptions because those perceptions have been implanted by an expert community of academics, of activists, of public health officials who don't want you to think that these products are lower risk. Uh, they don't like the harm reduction concept. They think everybody should cease using nicotine completely. And therefore, a, a much safer way of using nicotine in their world works against their ultimate goal, which is a nicotine or drug-free society. And it's no accident this. People work tirelessly to confuse the public about the risks of using these products. It's despicable, it's irresponsible, and they're not accountable for it, but that's what's going on. Yeah, I will say, I mean, it's been stunning to me when I look in the political environment and see that some of the most vociferous anti-harm reduction folks in the tobacco field are the people who were my allies on drug policy reform. You know, the governors, the senators, the congressmen, the local legislators who were my allies on legalizing marijuana for medical purposes and more broadly on advocating for needle exchange and harm reduction with illicit drugs are the ones introducing bills and banning e-cigarettes. So before we get into why that's happening, let me just ask you in greater specificity some of the things that I hear from this other side, right? One of them says, okay, maybe e-cigarettes are good if you're smoking and you can't quit entirely, then it's good to switch to an e-cigarette or a heated tobacco product. Many of them will admit to that. But they'll say, what about the kids? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you now have kids vaping who never would have touched a cigarette, but they're getting into vaping and then they're getting addicted to vaping. And it can't be healthy for you to just be inhaling this stuff through these electronic devices where we don't really have long-term studies. I mean, how do you respond to that, Clive? Well, <laughs> I don't think anybody approves of any kids doing anything risky, you know, drinking, taking drugs, uh, drink driving, having premature sex. There is a whole range of risk behaviors that young people enter into that adult society generally would rather they didn't. But the problem is they do. And they do that partly because adolescents are in a kind of graduation process from being children to being adults. Adults use these substances, so they do. Therefore, I, I think you just have to recognise that risk behaviours are part of life. They happen to be concentrated in kids that have usually had a bit of a tougher life. Uh, they haven't done well at school. Their families are not always as sort of robust as you would like. They may have uh, some mental health issues. They may be in poverty or so on. So you, you see the underlying causes of these things are pretty fundamental. And therefore, I, I would start from the position, and, and this is an unpopular view, I, I, you know, I don't deny that, that some kind of drug use you know, is a given 
in all societies everywhere from ancient history onwards and will probably continue to be. And therefore, the sort of job of adult society is to the extent it can, not just to condemn it with a sort of just say no message, but to ensure that the options available are as safe as possible, are not outrageously dangerous, or at least there are good options available if you want them. Now, with vaping, there's a lot of very frivolous behaviour going on. It's a new thing. Um, you can do silly things like blowing big clouds with them, those slightly funky tech gadgets and so on. So what we find with youth vaping is that there is a, a lot of infrequent use. So this is kids basically being kids, messing around at parties, blowing big clouds and being silly. It's not an unusual thing for kids to do that. And it shouldn't be causing people to go mad with concern about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. When you look at more frequent users, so people who are using the products, you know, um, most days or every day, what you find is that those are the kids who did or would be using tobacco anyway. And they're, they're, you know, around a one third of U.S. teenage vapors would otherwise be typically smokers. Now, for them, the intriguing thing here is that vaping may be a diversion from doing something worse, i.e. smoking. And there's some evidence in the time series data that suggests the arrival and rise of products like Juul or vaping products more generally has caused a diversionary effect in the trajectory of smoking. In other words, it's accelerated the downward trend in smoking and vaping is effectively displacing smoking in the teenage population. And that's a good thing. So I think when people talk about youth vaping, you have to take a much more nuanced view of it. How much of it is frivolous? How much of it is more, you know, habituated? And of that, how much of that is a diversion from smoking? And for goodness sake, let's take youth risk behaviors in context. Vaping is amongst the most innocuous things that kids do amongst the whole spectrum of dangerous things that, you know, kids do. And it's not honestly where I think government agencies or anyone else should really be focused. Look at the opioid epidemic or, mm -hmm. you know, binge drinking. I mean, I hear you talk about, you know, who, who's, who's smoking, who's vaping. And I think we know from the evidence that smoking at this point, I mean, when I was growing up, I think you were as likely yeah. to see upper middle class, wealthy lawyers, doctors, teachers, professors smoking as poorer people. But now it really is among people lower income. Yeah. white and black, right? It's among people mentally ill, among LGBT community, et cetera, et cetera. But what struck me about the phenomenon of jeweling, and here I should say, you know, like Juul is to e-cigarettes, right? More or less like Kleenex is to tissues or Xerox is to copy machines or maybe even like Purdue Pharma's OxyContin uh, was to oxycodone, right? Where it mm. plays a big role in the market, but it seems even more dominant because it's become a generic name. What I was struck, especially in places like San Francisco and other cities and even where I live in New York, was that what was happening was that middle, upper middle class kids, kids going to the private schools, the, you know, living in the fancy neighborhoods, that they were beginning to vape and getting into Juul and sometimes having a hard time stopping. And their parents, I mean, their parents either had never smoked or hadn't done it in decades. They basically don't hang out with people who smoke or vape. They think they don't know anybody who smokes or vape. I mean, the only people they know who smokers or vape are probably the people who work for them, and those people don't do it in front of them. So these upper middle class, 
who can call their local legislator are finding their kid vaping and they're totally freaking out that, my God, my kid was not going to smoke at all. So he's doing this stuff. And then they read like, oh, Mm -hmm. my God, the adolescent brain is vulnerable. And what do you say about that? All right. So there's a couple of things there, uh, Ethan. I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. You know, the concerned soccer mums have enormous political clout and their definition of the problem, which is that their kids are doing this, is, you know, a a national uh, crisis, a vaping epidemic, uh, is how that has played in the media. I don't think the data is fully in on that yet, but I don't think that will actually play out when we have all the data what we'll see is that most of the better off kids will be amongst the more frivolous users. And also they will be the ones who give up, you know, fairly quickly, either after they leave school or after they leave college, that they get um, serious jobs, they settle down, have families and so on. That's at least what the history of smoking has told us. If you go back to the time when, you know, you had uh, 12th grade, you might have had 35% of young people smoking, what you'd have seen is a fairly even social economic distribution, which then consolidated into a sharp socioeconomic gradient as the better off kids gave up as they entered, you know, if you like, middle class society. And I suspect that we will see that again as those kids age into their 20s. Again, if we're really concerned about this, we'd be focused on the disadvantaged kids, the kids who would be smoking now and are now vaping instead, or at least now have the option to vape instead of smoking. That's where there's a public health win. And of course, the soccer moms uh, who are you know, running point on this campaign pay no attention to them. They're not really interested in the class basis of uh, youth vaping. They're interested in the middle class basis of youth vaping. And they're missing something really important because of that. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, uh, you know, it's obviously people are worried about their own kids. And, and obviously when upper middle class people are worried about their own kids, that's a politically great significance. But, you know, one thing is Jewel came up with this product, right, that was particularly innovative, like a little thumb drive and a good effect. But one argument could be, OK, let's ban the products that kids seem are so attracted to, even if the adults like them as well. But allow the products that don't seem as appealing to kids, like these heated tobacco products, heat not burn. Or Philip Morris just got its product called Icos, right, which is a kind of bulkier product and seems to be effective as a harm reduction device. Why not just allow the heated products and say, no, you can't do those e-cigarettes or things that where kids are going to be drawn to them? Well, I, I think the first thing to say about that is that vaping is enormously popular with adults. And the Juul product has had amazing success in converting adult smokers to vapors. And the reason is that it the whole package of it works very well for smokers. It's easy to use. It delivers, uh, it can, if you want it to, deliver nicotine at roughly the same levels that cigarettes can. It's small, it's compact. Uh, it uses low volumes of liquid and it looks okay. So that package has been very, very attractive with smokers. It's not obvious that, you know, I think one of the things that smokers are trying to do is they're trying to get away from 
the experience of smoking. So the heated tobacco products are very good and they work for some people some of the time. And one of the reasons that they work is the experience is closer to smoking. So for people who want something that is a closer substitute, they work very well. But there's a whole bunch of other people who want to migrate away from smoking and end up using a flavour that is, I don't know, peach, melba or something that uh, has no echoes or cues associated with smoking whatsoever. So I think you've got to be really careful before you say, well, on the basis of these kids using these products, we're going to stop the adult smokers who are actually the at-risk population from having access to these products that they really like and work for them. And at the same time, you've also got to, I keep coming back to this, you've got to be mindful that there's a lot of kids who would otherwise be smoking, otherwise doing other risk behaviours. And I think if I was one of these concerned parents, if you were to sit down and rank the list of things that you should be worried about as a parent, okay, drink driving would be up there at number one. I mean, kids getting smashed up in cars is the number one cause of death in the age range from uh, 15 to 24. And that's driven by reckless driving, often fueled by alcohol. So that, I think, would be my number one. Uh, I would be really concerned about vulnerabilities caused by alcohol the risk of violence, the risk of uh, sexual assault and so on. I would be concerned about some of the things that are going on now, like cyberbullying, some of the things that go on in terms of the way social media are, are used. I would be really concerned about kids' mental health status, what's going on with self-harm and kids being depressed and suicidal ideation and so on. I'd be extremely concerned about any uptake of opioids and use of fentanyl. As I say, I think it's important to get these risks, the risks associated with vaping, which are very, very low in context with the whole panoply of youth risk behaviours and behave accordingly and recognise that for a whole section of the population, these vaping products are extremely beneficial and maybe life-saving for them. So it's not just that vaping is a, a lesser public health problem mm -hmm. than smoking. It is actually a huge public health benefit for smokers who manage to switch. And that's the kind of grown-up discussion we need to have about these products, including with parents. And the flavors issue? Because sometimes you hear people saying, okay, allow the tobacco-flavored uh, e-cigarettes, but ban you know, all the ones that the kids like. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, there's a lot to say about that, but obviously the purpose of flavours, I mean, this can't be denied and it's trivially obvious, flavours are put in the products to make them more attractive. And if you have an unflavoured vape, it doesn't really taste of anything. So what you're trying to do is create a rival proposition to smoking. Now, smoking is full of flavour. It's not added flavours, but it's full of flavour that comes from the smoke, the actual products of combustion. So to satisfy somebody who smokes, you need something in its place. You need the products to actually taste interesting and, and be good. Otherwise, no one will use them. It simply won't play a role in displacing smoking and driving down smoking-related disease. The interesting thing about the flavours debate in the United States is that the activist community, the anti-vaping activist community, started off saying, well, we shouldn't have things like gummy bear or cotton candy flavours because these are obviously childish type things. 
<laughs> and then they discovered that kids were, uh, or adolescents were, taking up Juul. But Juul comes in fairly bland, uh, well, fairly bland-sounding flavours. So cucumber, mango, creme. Uh, so these flavours were not in any way targeted at kids. But because kids were using them, the activist organisation said, ha-ha, those must be kid-appealing flavours too, so we need to ban all of those. So what started off as a niche proposition that you would ban things that were obviously childlike, like gummy bear or whatever, suddenly massively expanded in scope to include every flavour that wasn't a tobacco flavour. So the real fanatics in this field now say you should ban every flavour that isn't a tobacco flavour. And for some reason, they think it's a good thing that the only vaping products you should have on the market should, as far as possible, resemble cigarettes. I simply don't understand the logic of that. So I don't agree with flavour bans. Mm -hmm. Where I think you could do something, there are basically three ways of controlling flavours. The first is as a chemical. So do the chemical agents in this uh, flavour cause cancer? Are they mutagenic? Are they reprotoxic? Are they respiratory sensitizers? So treat them as toxic agencies. And if they are, then don't allow them or restrict them in some way. Secondly, you have a flavor sensation. So you subjectively decide that this product tastes of apple, or it tastes of key lime pie, or it tastes of tequila sunrise or something. That is a much harder thing to interact with. That that's a subjective opinion of what the flavor is. And I don't think you should be trying to ban that. The third area that you can regulate in terms of flavors is the flavor descriptor. So, you know, we call this gummy bear, or we call it cotton candy, or we call it unicorn vomit, or we call it something that is designed to capture the imagination of kids. Now, that is an area where I think you could justify intervention. Not so much the flavour itself, but the communication about the flavour and the attempt to, you know, appeal to kids. Now, I happen to think that a lot of adults like childish sounding things as well. There's a lot of nostalgia and retro in there. But if you're going to regulate anywhere, I think it should be on the descriptors, not on the flavors themselves. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents. If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations... Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. 
episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So some people say, I mean, the UK seems to be, United Kingdom seems to be one of the models for embracing, to some extent, a harm reduction approach. You know, even e-cigarettes, vapes can be sold in hospital shops. And, you know, the government's sort of behind getting people to transition. And it appears that the uptake among young people is much lower than in the U.S. But some people then say, well, that's because the U.K. limits the nicotine level of e-cigarettes. You know, the Juul or others are, what is it, 50 milligrams for whatever. In the U.K., it's got to be half or a third of that. So what about restricting the nicotine content? Well, again, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, people have noted that there's a limit of on the strength of nicotine in e-cigarettes in Europe and still including in the UK. It's very difficult to show that that is the reason why there is a, a low level of e-cigarette uptake in UK kits. We do have the problem that I don't think products like the Juul product have been anything like as effective at converting smokers in the UK uh, as we've seen in the United States. It's a bit hard to really understand why cigarette smoking or vaping goes up and down anywhere. But I suspect it's something to do with fashion, with the way group preferences are, are formed. And I have to say, I think it's probably something to do with the near hysterical levels of moral panic about vaping in the United States. CDC did a, a survey, uh, I think it was 2018, and looked for the reasons kids said that they were taking up vaping. And the number one reason was curiosity. 
And flavours were number three, uh, and you know, less than half of the kids cited that compared to curiosity. Now, if you've got every newspaper, every parent, every teacher, every agency, every TV station blasting out at you, hey kids, all other kids are doing this, uh, people think it's fashionable, people think it's really cool, look, here's how you hide it in your rucksack. There's a whole bunch of kids that can even do it in class. You've got these sort of bizarrely weird anti-vaping campaigns that sort of, you know, hark back to sort of reefer madness kind of levels of bizarreness. I just suspect that that may actually be a contributory driver because which respectable kid says, well, this is something I must now try if adult society is this upset about it. In the UK, the whole thing is much more mundane the government advertises e-cigarettes on television and pitches it at rather uninspiring kind of 40 plus year old people. It looks like something that kind of more older people do as an alternative to smoking. And we don't have everybody losing their minds about it. It's seen as something that's good for health and something that you should do if you're a committed smoker. That's how the positioning has been. So I think those reasons are probably more likely than the, the nicotine reason. I mean, going to why I think the nicotine reason is less likely. I mean, the nicotine strength thing is a little bit of a red herring in understanding this. Just because a nicotine liquid is stronger doesn't mean you consume more nicotine. It means you consume less liquid. It's a little bit like whiskey. You know, you don't consume whiskey by the pint you consume it by a few milliliters at a time. It's not something that you glug down like you would glug down beer. And it's the same kind of thing with stronger vaping liquids. So the dual product uses a strong liquid, but the user will get about the same nicotine that somebody using a weak liquid in a much larger device would use. Well, some people have come back at me and say, okay, I buy your argument about the benefits for adults, but why not just make it available by prescription? That'll help keep it out of the hands of kids, and adults can still get it just as easily as they get other drugs that doctors prescribe very easily. Why not, why not prescription only? The reason is that if you're dealing with a population of smokers, you're trying to get them to do something that they may be reluctant to try. If you start to put barriers in the way of people accessing the alternatives, or if you misunderstand their drive to use these products, then you will get a much lower rate of switching. So there are really two kind of competing models for quitting smoking. One is this sort of medical route in which you get a nicotine replacement therapy or a, a pharmaceutical prescription-only preparation like varenicline or bupropion. And the idea of those is to manage withdrawal and craving while you move from smoking to abstinence. The e-cigarette public health model works in a completely different way. It works by replacing one pleasure, smoking, with another pleasure, vaping, that has many of the same characteristics. So it's branded, it comes in flavors, it has a nicotine delivery that you like, it has throat sensation, hand-to-mouth movement, it forms part of behavioral rituals and so on. It replaces many things that people get from smoking, but with a lot lower risk. So it's an alternative consumer proposition. Now, if you suddenly try to take that 
and cram it into the medical box, you're breaking the basic appeal that that proposition has to smokers who do not always see themselves as sick and in need of treatment by the healthcare system. Okay, so uh, Clive, the people selling these e-cigarettes, right, are ultimately going to be big tobacco. They didn't start it, right? It got started as something that was almost challenging big tobacco, and the whole vaping world was anti-big tobacco. But when big tobacco saw the opportunities and maybe saw the writing on the wall, and what I also hear from people is, so, okay, cigarette markets are declining. Big tobacco is trying to save its ass by getting people addicted to something new. They are now going to be doing ever more sophisticated e-cigarette and other types of devices. They're going to be hooking a whole new generation to a new set of nicotine products that they'll be making money on. And in the same way that decades ago, big tobacco experimented with how to make cigarettes more addictive, now they're going to be trying to figure out how to make these e-cigarettes more addictive uh, so that a young generation starts like they did with cigarettes, you know, a decade and generations ago, and they become lifelong consumers uh, with a product that is still of, you know, safer than cigarettes, but we don't know how much safer. Oh, so big tobacco is a burden that all of us who work on the public health side of this have to contend with. They worked uh, tirelessly to acquire a truly dreadful reputation over smoking and disease, and they deserve their pariah status. And their involvement in this makes things much more difficult. Ironically, I think, in a way that cartel involvement in, in the drug trade hasn't actually been a barrier to harm reduction. I may be wrong about that, but I feel that the salience of big tobacco in the nicotine and harm reduction debate actually has been very negative. But there's not much they can do about that. Their incentives are to go where the consumer goes. And if the consumer is switching their preferences for nicotine use from smoking to vaping to uh, heated tobacco products to other non-combustible products, then that is where the tobacco companies will go. And I think what we're seeing is that they will evolve, and they are, this is happening already, uh, they are evolving into nicotine companies and to varying degrees, and the companies are not monolithic, there isn't really a big tobacco, they're all different and they all compete with each other, but to varying degrees, the companies are trying themselves to make a transition from combustible to non-combustible products. So Philip Morris International, the biggest company in the world outside China, I think now has something like 23% of its net revenue from non-smoked products, up from you know a tiny fraction in around 0.1% in 2015. So those companies are undergoing a transition. And that is basically a good thing. It is good that they are trying and hopefully increasingly driven out of the merchant of death business. The more that we can encourage them to do that, the less heavily their footprints will tread on global mortality. That would be a good outcome. We get back to sort of fundamentals here. What are we actually dealing with? Are we dealing with something that would simply go away if the tobacco companies went away? Well, I don't think we are. I think nicotine is amongst the legal recreational drugs that have proved popular in society. They've been popular for, you know, many centuries. And I think 
in trying to sort of wish away nicotine use, were making some of the same mistakes that the sort of abstinence-only crowd in drug policy have made. It's much better to work with the assumption that people will wish to use these drugs and in the case of nicotine, it's a relatively benign drug, and try to make arrangements so that they can be used safely uh, with some sort of accountability, quality control, redress, taxation, and regulated management of the risks. And the non-combustible products allow us to do that and create a platform, I think, for people who want to use nicotine for the foreseeable future in which the tobacco companies are bound to play some sort of role. But that's a good thing. They have an enormous reach. And if they manage to convert most of their customers, we'd see the smoking disease epidemic fade away pretty quickly. I mean, Clive, it seems to me that the dynamic you want is that you want startup companies, right, disruptive companies like Juul was, um, or if you think about like Tesla was with respect to electric vehicles, right, that you want these independent companies who yeah. are committed to taking over the world, selling their basically safer product to be challenging the traditional companies that are selling their more dangerous product. And then you want the big tobacco companies or same thing with the big auto companies, you want them feeling so challenged that they see no choice except to move in that direction as well. Yet at the same time, if it's left just up to big tobacco, if they're taking over the whole e-cigarette and harm reduction product market, I mean, big tobacco, their bottom line is the shareholder, is profits, right? So even when they say they're committed to yeah. moving in yeah. the harm reduction direction, even when they're doing stuff to do that, they still may not want it to move too quickly in that direction because that might undermine their profits. They would seem to have an interest in moderating the transition because yeah. cigarettes are immensely profitable to them, more than the e-cigarette are at this point. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the question is, how does one incentivize the big tobacco companies to move as quickly as possible? Is, are there things that government can do? Are there other ways to do this? Look, Ethan, I agree with that analysis very strongly. I think the example of, of Tesla is a really interesting one, because what you have there is, you know, radical innovator, but the worldwide impact of electric vehicles will be felt through whatever Toyota and Volkswagen do, what General Motors and Ford do, not what Tesla does. And so I, I think that model is exactly right. And we've had that up through the previous decade. The smaller, if you like, insurgent e-cigarette companies have changed the game and completely changed consumer expectations. They've made this a thing, and now the tobacco companies have to follow, and they'll follow by acquisition or by innovation in their own labs. And that is a good dynamic. That is how you get a technology change. That is the process of creative destruction working as intended as new innovations diffuse through the user population to obsolete the old technology. The question then is, how do you incentivize that process so that it works faster, better, and the change is more rapid and deeper? And again, here, it's about taking the incentives of all the companies involved and aligning them with transition from high-risk to low-risk products, both as consumers and producers. <laughs> And this is one of the frustrations I have. I hope my frustration is coming over here. So one of the frustrations I have is that so many people in the public health world seem to be working against that. Huge amounts of money seem to be going into slowing 
this highly desirable creative destruction process from high-risk to low-risk products. Um, if you take the situation in the United States, the process for licensing an e-cigarette product is massively burdensome, requiring a, a huge authorization process uh, running to you know millions of dollars per unit that really only the biggest companies can afford. The FDA itself is creating a dynamic that will restore the tobacco industry oligopoly in the e-cigarette market, replicating the oligopoly it has in the cigarette market. We see WHO going around the world applauding every time a developing country outright bans e-cigarettes, effectively introducing a regulatory protection of the incumbent cigarette trade. I mean, nothing could be more mad than that. Yet, in theory, the top public health body in the world, that's its favoured policy. Prohibit e-cigarettes outright. Leave the cigarette trade relatively untouched. Yeah. Well, Clive, I think we're getting to the issue of the elephant in the room here, which is a fellow named Michael Bloomberg, you know, my distinguished mm. mayor for many years in New York City. Yeah. But here's a guy who's one, what maybe the 10th wealthiest guy in the world, you know, 50, 60 billion dollars a year. He put a lot of money into trying to get people to quit smoking, which I think we can agree was a very good thing for him. But he's now spending, you know, committed hundreds of billions of dollars to banning vaping. And then I look deeper and you see that he's given a hundred million dollars, I think, to the WHO, World Health Organization's foundation. And he's given $100 million to the CDC, the foundation of the Center for Disease Control. And he's funding all these groups that we're talking about, right? So it seems to me there's a powerful corrupting thing going on here with somebody who's been very committed in other areas to public health and even to harm reduction, but who has a kind of ideological prohibitionist abstinence view here. And I'm wondering if there's, you know, how far does this influence go? I mean, you look at the medical societies, you know, the ones, the cancer societies, the heart associations. I mean, even these organizations that should be leading advocates for protecting health, buying into the anti-harm reduction thing. Is all that just about this money or is it, I mean, what is it? So look, I mean, Mr. Bloomberg, I, I don't doubt for one minute his intentions and his motivations are good. I think he's trying to do good in the world. He's trying to spend his fortune in, in a way that improves things. And uh, I think everyone should acknowledge that he's done a, a lot of really good work. But look, he's a financial services billionaire. He is not well connected with public health or with the lived experience of people uh, who live in poverty and various forms of disadvantage. He doesn't know what it's like to be uh, a smoker or a vapor. And yet he's a kind of instinct player. He is putting an immense amount of money into this field, but matched by kind of billionaire confidence that what he's doing is right. And the problem is that not everything Mr. Bloomberg does do is right or has the effects that he expects it to have. You know, I just take one example uh, recently. So he has put $160 million into campaigning to ban e-cigarette flavors in the United States. Now, in advocacy terms, that is a gigantic sum of money to try and secure a policy objective that is sort of relatively obscure in kind of most people's thinking. Yet we have just had some early data in from San Francisco where they did introduce a ban on e-cigarette flavors. And you know what happened? 
youth smoking went up when surrounding districts that had not banned e-cigarette flavours, uh, smoking rate continued to track downwards. So there we have the example of an unintended consequence arising. We can't say for certain that, that about cause and effect, but it appears very strongly related that we had a policy measure favoured by Mr. Bloomberg. And look, it's turned out to have an unintended consequences that causes the public health impact to be worse, not better, as a result of his investment. Now, Bloomberg also told the New York Times during his run for the presidency that he thought that vaping should be outright prohibited and that it would be good if the future president of the United States did that. Now, prohibition comes with the, just the worst kind of possible unintended consequences. Yet he is promoting these kind of policies around the world. He's put in over a billion dollars worldwide into campaigning, including into the World Health Organization, including into the World Bank, including into a large network of supposedly civil society organizations who really are just kind of astroturf for him, all pushing these kind of ideas. And they create a kind of, I would call it a sort of Bloomberg anti-vaping propaganda complex. It's a gigantic enterprise funded by enormous quantities of money and ideological commitment to actually marginalising these products and marginalising the harm reduction concept in favour of his own preferred package of measures, which he thinks will lead to total abstinence. So he's an abstinence-only campaigner in a world of public health that generally favours harm reduction in all other areas, whether it's HIV, sexual health, drugs, alcohol, yeah. and so on. We tend to favour harm reduction and not him in this area. And he is really causing an immense amount of trouble. And his legacy, I'm afraid to say, will be dominated, I think, by a reanalysis at some point in the future that no one did more to protect the incumbent cigarette trade than he did. And he will bear responsibility for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of deaths as a result. Yeah, no, I mean, Clive, I agree. It's a tragedy because, you know, we look at the evil work of big tobacco over all those years and how many people have died. And now to see Bloomberg's philanthropic money basically, you know, standing in the way of what would be an effective public health campaign, apparently because he's just surrounded himself with the wrong people in this area. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. 
Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When you look at the heart association, uh, the, the lung association, I mean, why are these medical associations, which should be focused on the science and the evidence, why aren't they getting much more behind tobacco harm reduction? Ethan, it's a great question. And actually, it's the question I'm most often asked because a lot of people are like, you know, can't understand why, oh, why, oh, why can't everyone just get behind this and will have dealt with smoking in a couple of decades? It will be gone completely from the world, you know, or it will be highly marginalized. I think there's lots of reasons behind it. I think there is a strong gut instinct of disgust about smoking uh, that came from people who were, you know, perhaps non-smokers rights campaigners, the fact that people had to grow up in smoky environments and so on. And I think those people, their instinct, their gut visceral instinct is that they just want the whole thing gone. Then I think there's the medical establishment view, which is, look, we know best. You should give up this habit using a medicalized approach that we favor. Uh, you are our patient. You are in treatment. Do what we tell you and you will recover and be cured. Unfortunately, that model doesn't really work very well for most nicotine users most of the time. The success rates of that are extremely low. And by medical, you're talking about things like uh, nicotine patches and gums and some of the pharmaceutical products to help people quit? Yeah, I, I think there's a medicalized model behind this that says, oh, look, this is tobacco use disorder. It's a psychiatric ailment. We will cure you using pharmaceuticals that will deal with your withdrawal and cravings, and we will get you from being a user to being abstinent. That's a model. It's not one that says, actually, we're cool with nicotine use. Just don't smoke because that's what's going to give you cancer, heart disease, and 
respiratory ailments. That is not the way medical people think about this, and they, they've aligned around that. But I think, I think there's even bigger reasons for this. So, and I was part of this. I, I, as you said in the introduction, I used to run Action on Smoking and Health in the UK in the late 90s to early 2000s. And basically, we built a massive fighting machine for fighting big tobacco and fighting the cigarette trade and smoking. And we were all, you know, basically in the great tobacco wars. And it was, you know, a big conflict with a big, bad industry. The trouble is that machine still exists. And I think what it's done is rather than say, look, there's no more war to fight, it's sort of swiveled its gun turrets towards the new thing and has now started blasting away because that's what it does. That's what you do in the anti-tobacco, anti-smoking movement. You go into battle against big businesses and behaviors that you kind of disapprove with. And so there's a kind of institutional inertia that sort of sits behind this in the same way that there isn't a kind of caffeine control industry or the alcohol control industry is much smaller and weaker because it doesn't fight the same kind of battles that we used to fight against big tobacco. And then, I, I don't know, money plays a role. I mean, many of those organizations that you mentioned, you know, uh, Lung Foundation, Heart Foundation, they have taken significant money from Bloomberg for joining in this anti-vaping effort. So you can't rule out the effects of money. You also see that happening in academia. Food and Drug Administration and National Institutes for Health are a huge source of funding for research. But the kind of research they want is research that finds problems, that finds reasons to regulate, that finds bads. They are much better at research that develops a problem than research that acknowledges or investigates an opportunity. You just don't see research looking to kind of round out and quantify the opportunities at anything like the scale or with anything like the financial backing that you see from, from problem-orientated research. Yeah. Clive, I'll tell you, when I started getting involved in this area a few years ago, uh, what really struck me was that I was meeting these wonderful researchers, distinguished academics, uh, who were pro-harm reduction. And they reminded me a lot of the people I had met in the academic world who were doing the work on harm reduction and needle exchange and overdose prevention in the 80s, 90s, and, and aughts. I mean, basically, who, people who were focused on how do we most effectively reduce the harms associated with the consumption of tobacco in our society. Society. And that was the focus, uh, balancing these yeah. the kids, these the adults, you name it. And then what I saw on the other side was this kind of massive establishment funded with government money and Bloomberg money, who also wanted to reduce the harms of tobacco, but who diverged, A, because in, where they had started off being just anti-smoking, now they had adopted a sort of ideological anti-all-nicotine approach, a kind of abstinence-only approach, yeah. that secondly, it seemed like they were so traumatized by their multi-decade battle with big tobacco that basically driving a stake through the heart of big tobacco seemed to be a greater objective for them than was adopting a really comprehensive harm reduction approach. And now, as you say, they have the money to fight this battle. But I mean, is that the way the world looks to you as well on this? Yes, uh, it does, actually. I, and I think I think it's a very good assessment of the, the current situation. It's harder and harder for them to maintain the argument about harm reduction in the nicotine and smoking area. 
evidence is coming in all the time that vaping is displacing smoking with a net public health benefit. And, you know, I'm sure that evidence will get stronger and stronger over time. There's no real doubt about it. There's multiple strands of evidence that confirm that that is the case. So what we've seen is the people who oppose these developments, the anti-harm reduction, abstinence-only groups, have gravitated to two basic sets of arguments. One is kids and the vulnerability of kids to nicotine, in which I think we've discussed that quite a bit, but I think you have to just take a much more nuanced view of youth risk behaviours to work your way through that. And the second, and you hear this getting louder and louder, is the tobacco industry. Essentially, the tobacco industry comes with such terrible reputational baggage, they form an almost perfect enemy. And it's almost as if you can dismiss an entire public health concept like tobacco harm reduction just by mentioning the word tobacco industry or suggesting that the tobacco industry may benefit from selling the products that are harm-reduced, low-risk alternatives to smoking. That almost, for some people, ends the argument. Yeah. Clive, you know, I'll tell you, before COVID came along, right, the sort of epidemic before the pandemic was the epidemic of vaping, right? It was on the headlines and TV shows and magazine covers in the United States. And then toward the end of that, in mid-2019, we saw this whole thing about, oh my God, people are landing up in the hospital, right? And their lungs are getting destroyed. And the CDC, the U.S. Center of Disease Control, labeled the disease an e-cigarette and vaping e-valley. I can't remember what ALI Mm. stands for, but they labeled it that thing. Now, it turned out, of course, that virtually the entire thing was not about nicotine vaping. It was about illegally produced THC vape cartridges, which some knuckleheads were producing and mixing with vitamin E oil because that way they could, uh, you know, basically cut their costs and make more profit. And what struck me about it was the evidence that this was about tainted illegal THC vape cartridges and not about e-cigarettes seemed incredibly apparent from early on Yet health authorities and political officials and even the center of disease control kept obscuring that fact. I mean, what was going on there? Oh, I think this was an information sort of black operation, basically. You're quite right. There was a cause, you know, maybe around 3,000 hospitalizations, uh, over 60 deaths, very, very severe acute respiratory disorders. And therefore, there was a massive concern about it. But all the evidence, and it's not just even some of it, all the evidence is clear. This arised from the addition of a cutting agent to THC vaping oils. Cutting agent was vitamin E acetate. It's used to dilute the oil for economic reasons, a normal sort of you know drug production kind of economics. It was done in the illicit market by you know the criminals that produce and market these products. Had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with vaping. Nicotine, there's no link at all. You can't add that additive to a nicotine vape. It just, it's not soluble in the liquid and there is no economic purpose to doing it whatsoever. So having defined the cause, and I agree with you, this outbreak kind of came to light in probably around June 2019. By August 2019, it was pretty clear what the problem was. But I would say that CDC in particular were maintaining a kind of ambiguity about the cause, which persists to today. I mean, they've never said, which they should, definitively that nicotine vaping liquids were nothing to do with this. And it's just not possible 
that there would have been a separate cause in the nicotine vaping supply chain that happened in the same geography in the United States at exactly the same time, mid-2019 to early 2020, with exactly the same symptoms, but was caused by something else. Now, there was some confusion because some people denied using THC. What a surprise. Uh, if you admit to using cannabis, you can get in trouble with your employer, with the police, with your college, with your school, and with your parents. So unsurprisingly, some people said, no, 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 I was never vaping THC. And therefore, that was used to maintain the myth that this may have been something to do with nicotine vaping. But the fact that it never occurred anywhere else, uh, the fact that the cause in the illicit THC vaping supply chain is clear tells us what we need to know. And that incident is over because not even criminals want to actually kill their customers. So as soon as it was clear what was causing it, they stopped doing it, stopped using that thickener. The supply chain emptied and the problem tailed out in early 2000 hasn't really been seen since, except the odd thing that's been lingering in somebody's cupboard. It, it just seemed like an opportunity for the anti-harm reduction folks, right? And they, they really took it. Right. I mean, it was a myth. They propagated and perpetuated essentially a lie, even though they knew better. They promoted misinformation. They did this from the Center for Disease Control. And they said, well, if we're not being so successful discouraging them with whatever truth we have on our side, let's take advantage of a myth and a popular fear and run with that. And I think, you know, I haven't seen the latest surveys, Clive, but I think probably a majority of Americans still believe believe that that lung damage, the lung problems resulted from nicotine vaping. It just hasn't been corrected. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, that that has created the perception that these products are highly dangerous. And there, there's been good measurements on how risk perception shifted in the United States. And actually, it flows across the Atlantic, of course. So we get this in the UK as well. People think these products are much more dangerous than they are. And that is one reason why? And the fact that CDC has never definitively sort of crushed that idea, which they could do if they wanted to, the fact that they've let it roll and let it run tells you that they have found it useful as part of their anti-vaping campaign. The problem is the unintended consequences of making people fear vaping is that you get relapse from vaping to smoking and you get fewer smokers willing to switch from smoking into vaping. So, you know, the idea that that was a good thing to do is actually an incredibly irresponsible thing to do. And then also for the people who are users of illicit THC vapes, diffusing the problem across nicotine vaping, THC vaping, any kind of vaping has not given the sharp public health message. We should be watch out when you buy an illicit THC vape. You know, that message was lost as mm -hmm. well. So there was a harm associated with not warning vaping cannabis users properly about the danger. So the whole thing is grossly irresponsible, in my opinion. And it's one of the reasons why it effectively pans out as another form of defense of the cigarette trade. It gives people the reason to say, no, 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 I'm going to stick with this. And one final point on this, Ethan, if, if you don't mind, it's also been conflated with another lung-related thing, which is popcorn lung. So people have this big fuzzy idea. You know, normal people don't get into the detail or read papers on this quite reasonably. But they've heard about something called popcorn lung being associated with vaping, which it isn't. It's associated with one additive used sometimes in vaping when you're exposed to massive levels of it. 
but you've heard about popcorn lung and then you hear that there's people dropping dead from vaping because of this Ivali thing, put two and two together and go, oh, I'm not even going to take that risk. I'll stick with the lung disease that I know and like, which is cigarettes. Yeah. You know, I guess what it comes down to, Clive, is we think about it, there's over a billion people still smoking cigarettes or other combustible tobacco products around the world. There's 35 to 40 million smokers in the U.S., which is roughly equal to the entire population of California or almost the same as the entire population of black people in America. And if all of them were to suddenly switch to vaping or using these oral products or heated products, it would probably be one of the greatest public uh, health advances in human history. And it seems that what stands in the way is just the same sorts of ignorance and foolishness and self-interest that drove the war on drugs for many years. Would you agree with my formulation that way? I agree with you. I, I think the more you look at this, the more it has the feeling of war on drugs mentality. We, we used to be in a battle against harm. I mean, I got into the business because, you know, it was about cancer, about heart disease, uh, about people living in utter misery with emphysema and so on. Uh, my father died smoking-related disease associated with heart failure. There were real public health reasons to be involved. Now, as we're beginning to solve that problem with these non-combustible products, we're seeing a big shift to a war on drugs mentality, which is that we don't think people should use the drug nicotine. Now, that's a very different public health proposition, and it's not one that I think uh, we should be pursuing. I think we should be pursuing reduction of harm, material disease outcomes, uh, life expectancy outcomes, and not worrying ourselves about nicotine so much. I mean, I'm not recommending nicotine use, but people are going to use it in the same way that they use alcohol. Not recommending that either, but people do like it and people do use it. The question is, can you keep the harm under control? Yeah, Clive, you know, I think also for me growing up, my basic exposure to addiction was seeing my dad's relationship to cigarettes and to food. And he died of a massive heart attack when he was 58 as a result, probably, we can't prove it, but probably of his pack-a-day cigarette habit and his obesity. And I oftentimes have thought in recent years that my dad would have been a good candidate to have switched to an e-cigarette or a heated device, and it might have made the difference in his living longer. Sounds like your story is somewhat similar. I think exactly the same about my father. He, he would have loved the innovation. He'd have been an early adopter. And had he done that uh, early enough in his smoking career, had these things been available, he'd still be alive to now. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. I mean, I look at a very powerful politician like Senator Durbin, who said that he hates vaping and e-cigarettes because his parents died from smoking. And I'm thinking, why didn't he come down <laughs> where we are? <laughs> He's missing the point. Yeah. So, Clive, you know, I, I should say at the end of this that you really are one of my heroes here. I mean, seeing the extraordinary amount of work that you pump out and the ways that you're engaging with the World Health Organization, the FDA, and all folks and covering the literature and reading it as basically a one-man operation. So I just hope you're going to keep doing this and keep doing it until this battle is won. Um, you know, I, I think we both know that sometimes these battles can feel quixotic, but I'm incredibly grateful for the work you're doing and also for taking the time to have this conversation with me. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ethan. I wish it wasn't necessary. It shouldn't be necessary, but unfortunately it is. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Edelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. 
The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Next week, we'll be talking with Larry Krasner. He's the district attorney of Philadelphia and playing a pioneering role among the progressive prosecutors who are reshaping the face of criminal justice in American cities. You think most people, I mean, most of the cops and prosecutors and judges in Philadelphia would now vote for legalizing marijuana? Are we going to count the retired ones? If you count the retired ones, I would say no. No, but the current ones probably is. I think that there are uh, subgroups, maybe younger officers, probably officers of color who would vote for it. I think overall they would vote against it. And to be honest, they have a specific financial interest in voting against it because they don't simply get paid to arrest people they get overtime, and they get a lot of overtime for going to court to testify when they're not on shift. I mean, honestly, I think if they could arrest people for blue shirts, I'm wearing a blue shirt today, some of them would be mercenary enough to say, hey, sounds like a good plan. Let's arrest people for blue shirts. I want a beach house, and they would do it. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. 
So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.